Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, I'm Richard Reinch, and I'm at the National Conservatism Convention in Miami, Florida, and I am interviewing today Susan Hansen, Associate Professor of History at the University of Dallas, who also teaches at their Rome campus on subject of nationalism, what is nationalism, how does it fit within conservatism, uh, what do we make of this political development, what do we make of national conservatism, so a lot to discuss today. Uh, Susan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Susan, you're speaking at this conference on the subject of justice requires love of nation. Um, many argue that nationalism is just a problem. It's a political pathology. It leads to sort of an existential love of nation against other people. It marginalizes other peoples and uh, leads to sort of a concentration of power because why would you oppose the state? It's automatically good. You say justice requires love of nation. That, of course, brings up a lot of definitional uh, thoughts here. What do you mean by nation? Right. So I think that nowadays common sense with regard to the nation is kind of considered radical and extreme in the age of wokeism. Um, but there is a long-standing on realization that the nation is a natural community, just like the family, just like the church, um, that arises from our very nature as human beings. And it's not possible to uh, be a human being with bodily existence without having a particular place and time. And everyone was born at a particular place and born at a particular time. And that gives a certain character to our human nature. Um, even if I wanted to be someone who lived in first century Palestine or 13th century France, um, I can't escape the reality that I was born in 1970s Chicago. Um, that's just a feature of my existence, um, the same way that uh, who my, my mother and father are, are a fact of existence, and my relationship to all that is, um, the cosmos, and the, the first principle and the, and the final principle of all that is, um, my, my, my religious identity shapes my, my, my person. And so I think that we, we really can't escape these obligations of justice, these duties of justice um, towards our nation. Uh, a nation is not just a political regime, but a nation is a land and a language. Um, it's the language that we first learned to, to describe the landscape in. Um, I, have a, I have a Greek uncle who was born in Greece and lived there for seven years. And he's been living in the United States uh, for a good 60 years. And he still has a thick Greek accent and can't imagine retiring anywhere except somewhere with mountains. Um, these things shape us in a very profound way. And I think that um, we need to recover an older understanding of patriotism, um, which is very different from nationalism, but patriotism, which is um, a, a recognition of all that we have received, morally speaking, um, physically speaking, um, culturally speaking, from our country, and that, that does actually obligate us um, to have a love of nation. 
thinking about you said nationalism, and you don't define yourself as a nationalist, uh, two of our best thinkers uh, on this subject, one, the late Roger Scruton, this is my estimation, um, and also currently uh, uh, French political theorist Pierre Menant. Yes. Both eschewed the term nationalism. I think Pierre Menant's term is national loyalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to me what you're describing uh, when he thinks about France and what it brings. So let's, let's think about this. Uh, you're on a panel uh, under a subject heading of Catholicism and American political thought, something like that. Uh, how did uh, Catholicism shape or how, uh, both the Western nation and do we have a sense of the Catholic mind currently on love of nation? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Pierre Menent because his work um, is very helpful in understanding the role that the Catholic Church historically has played in shaping um, political regimes um, over the thousand years of Christian history in the Middle Ages, um, the beginnings of the nation as a new form of regime of limited government, um, limited in territory and limited in jurisdiction, um, that you know, before the nation, you had either the polis or the imperium, the city or the empire, and both of those were absolute um, regimes in which the the spiritual and the temporal power were absolutely united. And so when you start to have in Christianity this um, gospel principle of give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, um, sometimes in the Catholic tradition it's referred to as the Gelasian principle of there are two by whom this world is ruled, um, the spiritual and the temporal authority. When you have that splitting of the atom of temporal and spiritual power, you have the taming of the political power um, into, into something that we see as national, limited. Um, that a nation doesn't come in singulars the way an empire does. Um, nations are part of a consortium of nations. There's a limitation on territory and also a limitation on their jurisdiction, that they recognize the, um, the rights of families, they recognize the rights of the church, they recognize the rights of corporations and other voluntary associations. Um, and so a nation, while I wouldn't call myself a nationalist, I would call myself a proponent of the nation as one of the, the best um, features of the Christian impact on political history. So the, thinking about that, you know, Pierman not uses the term with regard to France, other countries in Europe, nations of a Christian mark. Mm-hmm. Um, have you thought about that comment and the ways that Christianity shapes the nation? You know, Manon argues it takes us out of the polis, it gives us a broader conception of human interactions, relationships, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but he also says it's not necessarily imperial. Um, and, and so the nation becomes sort of that intermediary point. Uh, is Catholicism uh, uh, intertwined with the nation state? Can we say that? Um, some would argue it's actually more inclined with being an imperial uh, church. What do you, how do you make So that? I think that um, the Catholicism, the, the word Catholic, means universal. And I think that the kind of um, universal attachment and, um, and supernatural attachment um, to other people that is demanded within the church siphons off some of the absolute character of your allegiance um, to 
your political regime. And so I think that there is a symbiotic relationship between um, the Catholic Church, um, Catholic Christianity, and as I, as I was, I was, I would put it, the the taming of the polis, the taming of the political regime into something that's shorn of its aspirations to be your universal identity, uh, your your universal um, point of allegiance. I want to kind of move forward and think about our own country, um, America, because America, you know, many have argued, um, many within the conservative movement have argued uh, that patriotism in America is necessarily just about love of ideas, that America is a nation of ideas, uh, and that's the way you have to understand us, and, and those ideas being uh, the Declaration of Independence, second paragraph, the natural rights teaching, the teaching about um, the rule of law, limited government, uh, federalism, separation of powers, all of these ways by which we have the protections for individual liberty and also for small-scale government um, and, uh, and, and for, for commerce, things like this. Um, where does the nation fit into American constitutionalism if we are sort of a, a country that you understand through universal ideas? Well, I'm, I'm a historian, not a political theorist, um, and so I do well, that, tend no, to that think mean, of... No, that means, no, no, that, that means you know more than the political theorists. They, <laughs> That's a, it's a, it's definitely part kidding. of my claim. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it, it means that I don't think that America can just be defined by the ideas, but it also is defined by the people who have immigrated to this country and um, found refuge in a country with those ideas. So it is true that the Declaration of Independence has a kind of universalism um, in its appeal to the laws of nature and nature's God, in its um, idea that um, rights are self-evident to anyone who is rational. So there's a kind of universalism in the Declaration of Independence. But American history is also the story of people who over the centuries have fled particular regimes in Europe Uh, primarily, um, but now globally, um, who have um, who have recognized that their families, their churches, their local communities, their um, freedom of of commerce and freedom of, of association, freedom of speech, was being shot down in other countries. And I think that if we only define America by ideas, we miss the rich history. Um, you know, if you say we were founded on the ideas of John Locke, how does that account for Cuban Americans? Right? Um, are Cuban Americans Lockean? Right? In in what way are Cuban Americans Lockean? And yet, Cuban Americans are a big part of American culture. Um, we have to recognize that we were founded by um, by the English, the Scots, the Irish, um, in a kind of first wave that was all leaving the rise of the British Empire. Um, but the enormous second influx of immigration between 1870 and 1920, um, coming from Eastern and Southern Europe, coming from from Greece and Italy, from Poland, um, from Germany, um, contributed um, a kind of cultural richness of those who espoused these ideas because they felt that they were compatible with their own um, cultural and religious Um, Outlook. Um, That's the first time that we got a a large number of Jews um, fleeing from 
from Russia initially and then later from Germany and the the development of this idea of a Judeo-Christian heritage that we all share mm. um, you know was was developed in a very rich way in the 1940s 1950s um, in reaction to totalitarianism I think that thinking of American national culture in terms of being a band of brothers you know where you have the you, you've got the Baptist kid from Iowa, uh, you've got the Jewish kid from the Bronx, you've got the English teacher from Boston, right? Um, you've got, you know, hitting the beaches of Normandy together, um, and there are certain principles that they all can espouse, but they all have a kind of cultural richness um, that, they, that they bring to the mix. Um, I think that, that without the history, then you don't really know America. Um, you can't just know America by the principles. Yeah, it's thinking, yeah, the... The idea of the natural rights republic and, say, our Cuban-Americans or, or other Americans, you know, one, one move could be that's how they're grafted in. Um, you know, if one thinks of uh, Abraham Lincoln's famous address where he looks to immigrants of his period and says, you know, they, they were not a part of the founding. You were not, you know, you're not directly related to that generation in any way. You can't claim relationship, but you're still bone of the bone and, and flesh of the flesh. He says it's through the Declaration, largely from those principles. And then I, I suppose those principles make it evident to have such a capacious republic where you've got people from so many different places uh, in the world who come here and can somehow get along. Um, but then there's these memories. And I think that's a country is also a place of memories and battles and thing that we suffer together things that we do together. It seems to me, just going back to Manon's idea of a, a nation of the Christian mark, um, I'd be very careful to say that about America as opposed to France. Um, there is something, though, about a country marked by a belief, and I think we can say this about America, that we are under God and the laws. I think most Americans would still say that. Uh, maybe they wouldn't realize it in the concrete way that I would. Uh, but there's something about that allowing a lot of different types of people to join together. And that's, that may be maybe the question we have to wrestle with is, are there limits to the type of diversity even the American nation can handle? Right. And I, I think, you know, here we are on September 11th, um, you know, remembering um, the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers. And I think those of us who lived that day will always remember the moment when all of the senators came out onto the steps of the, the U.S. Capitol building um, and saying, God bless America. And there was definitely a sense that maybe people have forgotten um, 20 years later, 22 years later, um, that in a moment of crisis, the United States did come together um, very much with this sense that it is a nation under God. And there was a kind of um, comfort level with, with that phrase, um, with a accepting the idea that, um, that the United States is a nation under God, um, that it's not an absolute nation, um, that our statutory laws do not, um, you know, th that, that laws on the books um, don't preempt the law of God. Um, I really do believe that there are a majority of Americans who still profoundly believe that. And they also, their allegiance to America, their patriotism to America is rooted in the fact that they believe America um, gives, them, gives them the space um, to believe in God and to espouse those beliefs. Um, I think that their, their patriotism and their religious identity are, are very caught up with each other. 
um, the under God phrase, um, which of course sometimes people think comes from the um, 1950s um, era of of the Cold War and fighting atheistic communism with the idea that we represent the um, the liberal democratic West um, against atheistic communism. And that's when they put the under God phrase into the Pledge of Allegiance. But of course. Um, Abraham Lincoln used it in the Gettysburg Address. And even when Abraham Lincoln used it in the Gettysburg Address, he was, when he ad-libbed it in the moment, um, it wasn't part of his script, um, he was remembering it uh, because he was very familiar with the writings of George Washington. And George Washington had used the under God phrase on the 4th of July, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was delivered to him at Brooklyn Heights in New York. Um, and he had it read out to his troops. And he added the words, now everything depends under God on the force of your arms. And so that phrase under God actually goes all the way back to the 4th of July, 1776, the words of, of George Washington. Um, and you know, as I say, I, I do think that the majority of Americans still believe um, that the nation is under God um, and that, that America is great because it um, creates a, a space for for deep um, religious attachment. Thinking um, about the American nation, you know, and you mentioned George Washington, George Washington's farewell address, you know, I, you can probably produce it better than me. The name American must become everything to you. Something like that. Right. So how did he think about the American nation? How did uh, certain framers, founders think not just about constitutionalism, the rule of law, natural rights, but the American nation itself. Mm-hmm. Well, George Washington had a copy of Cicero's On Duties in his library at Mount Vernon, um, and he also had a, a little sculpted image of Pius Aeneas fleeing Troy um, with his father Anchises on his back, which was probably the most famous image of Western civilization um, that you could acquire in the 18th century. Um, and, Pius, he had, and he had Cato's uh, play. And Cato's play was his... Um, uh, Joseph performed Addison, at Valley Forge. That's right. That's jo- an incredible fact. Joseph, Joseph Addison's um, play, yes. Cato, a tragedy, performed it yeah. at Valley Forge. So George Washington, who was actually one of the founding fathers who did not have a university education, a classical university education, unlike Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, um, nevertheless had uh, familiarity with this classical tradition, um, the kind of Ciceronian natural law tradition, which saw God, family, and country, God, father, and country as being the three most important elements of the obligation of justice, that we don't just have obligations of justice between equals, uh, between equal human beings, but we also have obligations of justice to those who we depend on for our very existence, our family, our country, and our God. And these were the obligations of piety. Um, nowadays, when we think of piety, we think of uh, you know little old lady in the back of the church with her rosary beads, right? But when the 18th century um, classical man uh, like George Washington thought of piety, he thought of this uh, pietas, this this patriotism um, to God, Father, and country that was absolutely necessary for a healthy society, and which is why George Washington, in his farewell address. Um, capitalizes religion and morality, capital R, religion, and capital M, morality, as pillars 
of the nation, and that he says no one could claim the name of patriot if they were to undermine religion and morality. The, the, that, that point about um, religion bringing forth virtue, bringing forth fidelity to the laws and, and good citizenship is uh, one we miss frequently. Also in the farewell address, the, the nation is the thing that he holds up against sectional rivalries and people privileging themselves or privileging um, you know, a particular state. Um, uh, he, he wants to try and create a national love there, a, a national standard of, of uh, a public virtue. Um, we forget all of those things. And it seems that reservoir from the founding of virtue and republicanism and the, and the connection that, you know, like John Adams saw, George Washington saw, Alexander Hamilton, that seems to have been forgotten. Um, and it seems like it's hard to even talk that way now. Uh, even within conservatism, it's hard to connect that language. Uh, maybe that's what can come out of national conservatism. Mm-hmm. I think that George Washington understood that America is not just divided up in states and regions, um, but every state is also um, divided up um, between you know the, the working uh, people and the middle class and the, the property owning um, wealthy. You know, in, in his time, whether it was the the plantation owning, slave owning um, class in the South, um, merchant investors in in the in the North. Um, and he wanted the country to be able to to think of themselves as Americans first um, and to see that what is good for America will be good for everyone in America um, and that the stability of property is very important for all Americans. Um, for Washington, and I really think for all of the 18th century American founders, um, property is important, personal property Private property is important because it gives you the ability to fulfill your most important obligations to to your nation, to your church, and to your family. If you don't have enough to be able to support your dependents, whether it's your aging parents and your children, if you don't have enough um, to be able to tithe to support the church um, or whatever philanthropic groups you think are most important in the culture around you, if you don't have enough um, to be taxed for the public defense and public order, um, just basic safety in our streets, um, then you are not a full member of the republic. Um, you're not taking care of the public things, which is the nation, the church, and, and the family. And um, so he wanted um, people to, to both support... Um, the, the payment of the veterans, taking care of the, the veterans from, from the American Revolution and their wives and children, um, uh, but also to pay back the public debt. And he, he and Alexander Hamilton obviously were very concerned about um, America's public debt after the American Revolution. And they recognized that without um, addressing um, the problem of public debt in an honorable way, um, in a just way, that America would never be economically independent. We, we would be politically independent from Great Britain, but we would never be economically on our feet. Um, and um, he's, he actually said that if we don't repay our public debt um, and if we don't take care of our veterans, then we will call down upon ourselves the aggravated vengeance of heaven. Um, that we can't count on 
um, something that was very important to George Washington, which was the notion of divine providence um, and that, that, God, that God was taking care of this community, um, but that we can't count on divine providence um, if we reject our most basic obligations um, to, to those to whom we are indebted. And I think this is very important for George Washington as well because um, it's something that has been forgotten um, in our description of the Founding Fathers, that George Washington was the only slaveholder at the American founding um, who freed all of his slaves at his death in his last will and testament. And he didn't just free his slaves. He also gave them property. The Washington estate was paying out an annuity, an annual sum, um, every year for the next 50 years after Washington's death, from 1800 to 1830 at least, um, to the slaves um, who you know had been at at Mount Vernon, because George Washington realized that you're not really free if you are on public welfare. You're not really free if you are, as they would have said in the 18th century, on the public purse, um, that you need property um, in order to be able to support your family, your church, and your nation through taxes um, in order to really be a full member of the republic. Um, so those two things were very connected in their mind, not in a, not in a, you know, evil, capitalist, commercialist, selfish way, um, but they recognize that property is essential for for virtue. We are, you know, human beings are, are bodies and souls, and um, we can't we can't live without property. Um, so that was, it was important to him. Now, do I sense Professor Hansen perhaps coming out against certain globalist economic policies that have, some would say, profoundly injured our working class? Um, uh, or am I drawing too big of a conclusion? Maybe, maybe I am, or, or maybe I'm just, uh, you know, trying to draw you out here. Uh, no, I, but, uh, I, that's, uh, I think there's. Um, th- there's I one think there's thing. A, lo- a lot of a lot of damage has been done both to the working class and to the middle class. Um, Let me ask you. I mean, and so we're here in national conservatism. Uh, the the contest for American conservatism uh, is one that goes on since it's really inception, post World War II inception. Most people would say that's when it begins. Uh, sometimes there's been uh, an anti-communist leadership. There's been a religious conservative leadership. Uh, famously, I think you could say, from the end of the Cold War up through 2005, there was a neoconservative leadership. Um, and then briefly, I think we had a libertarian moment uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, and then, you know, the Romney campaign fails. And it kind of gets, it's kind of thrown up in the air. And right now there's this tremendous contest. Uh, there's this thing, national conservatism. We all, there's a struggle to define it uh, at times. Chris DeMuth says he can define it. Um, uh, have you thought about that? Uh, and I'm asking you this as a historian, obviously, but also someone who reads widely and, and very smart um, about how American conservatives should talk about their country in, in politics and rhetoric, but also in, in substantive ways, military commercial uh, environment, you know, global environmental concerns, like how should we think about the nation as a unit of political analysis? Mm-hmm. Well, I think of myself as a capacious conservative. I'm, I like to be kind of understanding with all conservatives in the past 50 years. Um, it's been a, it's been a, a rough time. And um, I think that sometimes younger conservatives um, will say, well, we had to have an alliance with the libertarians. We had to have an alliance with the, you know, with the liberals or the um, the neoconservatives um, in the in the face of 
of communism, but that that's over. Um, and I think on the one hand that um, that really um, minimizes the entire struggle of the 20th century against international communism. Um, and it's not a struggle that is over in any way, shape, or form. I think that um, that socialism is still um, of grave concern. And so I don't really see um, burning those alliances um, anytime soon um, because I, I think that I think that sometimes the millennial generation just doesn't, they haven't been taught the history of the 20th century thoroughly enough. And they think that um, you can put um, international communism and its um, threat to the West um, into a subordinate clause and then dismiss it. Um, when in fact, um, it's, it's a huge feature of 20th century history and is not a minor feature of 21st century history either. Well, there is also this idea in, within national conservatism, Yoram Hazoni among others, that you know we're here, public institutions in America, many respects being taken over by critical race theory, uh, anti-racism. We've got my colleague Brenda Hafer at the Heritage Foundation has just written a conclusive report on the takeover of the Madison and Jefferson presidential homes by this garbage. Mm-hmm. And so this awareness of well, how do we defend public institutions? What's our, what's our, what are our ideas? Um, what's, how do we defend these things that constitute our nation? What do we bring in that defense? Uh, and one argument is, well, liberalism just empties out everything and makes way for critical race. They don't even know what we're about anymore. But this, like, you know, rabid socialist egalitarian, racist egal, racialist egalitarianism sounds good, sounds moral. Uh, and that's kind of what we're left with. Um, what do you make of that? Well... I think that um, it's not just the past few years where we have lost um, some of these public institutions of public memory, of national memory, um, to um, to the left, to the to the woke agenda, which sort of evacuates them of all patriotic um, content. Um, that really, um, for the past fifty years, I think a lot of our public institutions and and our our schools um, have been if not teaching a virulent hatred of America, have been um, soft-peddling um, against patriotism um, for a long time. I just uh, remember um, visiting Mount Vernon um, with students um, for the James Madison um, Program Fellowship at, at Georgetown University. I take um, it, do you take the students of Montpelier? Yes, yes, we have taken them there before. Um, but um, but. What's interesting is that at Mount Vernon, um, you know, they'll focus on things like this is the this is the original wallpaper, right? um, but they don't inform people of what George Washington did for our country. Um, they don't tell you of George Washington's generalship, um, his presidency, his farewell address. But you know, they make sure that you know that this is the 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 real wallpaper that was in his dining room. You know, I mean, so there's, we, over the years, we've gotten kind of banal with what Mm. we purvey as patriotism, even before it became virulent anti-Americanism. Yeah, it's interesting. Is this also just a feature of, if I think of the way Tocqueville talks about the problems of democracy and that democratic peoples assume everything that matters is happening right now and uh, put themselves first, put their concerns first, look to their own needs first, and have to actually cultivate 
um, not only a love of self, but a love of neighbor, a love of community, and recall what's come before them. And, and they sort of forget that. Um, it seems to be one problem that we have right now. I, mean, it, I think it's probably just endemic to democracy and this fast-paced life we all lead. Do we have time to sit and think and reflect? And also our, our educational institutions being ambivalent at best, if now it seems so many uh, you know, moving heavily against wanting to even teach American history. And, and it's really horrible in our elite private schools uh, as well, which is also very disconcerting. Um, you're at the University of Dallas. What do you see in terms of what students come to your school with uh, equipped to know and thinking about their country? And of course, you should say most of your students are fairly conservative. Uh, fairly faithful uh, Roman Catholics, so a subset. But uh, what do you see and how do you try and inculcate this? I think that at the University of Dallas, students have a kind of um, countercultural bent in them um, because of the families that they're coming from. And one of the beautiful things that I see is that there's still very much this family education with regard to patriotism and love of the nation going on. Um, in households, you would be surprised at how many students um, come to a school like the University of Dallas with a great familiarity of Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House in the Prairie books. Um, you know, the, the, the story of the difficulties that Pa and Ma and Laura and Carrie had in building the little house on the prairie um, and the, the work that went into building the family home. Um, but that's somehow part of their memory base as Americans. Um, I'm also always very surprised at how many people have gone on a, what I would call a political pilgrimage to Gettysburg um, to visit the battlefield at Gettysburg um, as a family, um, that this is something that they have done not just through their school, through their high school, their middle school, but as a family during a family vacation um, have gone off to, um, to visit Gettysburg. And so I think there are... Um, one of the ways I like to put it is I think there still are a lot of hobbits in America. Um, you know, Mordor has not reached every corner of America. Yeah. Um, there, there are still a lot of, um, of pockets of real health, um, you know, where, where there are people who believe in, in God and family, um, in, you know, barbecues on Friday night and, you know, dinner at grandma's on Sunday. Um, whether it's football on Friday night, you know, or, or whatever it is, you know, I mean, um, all of that is worked into our our country music tradition. Um, I we have a we have a wonderful musical um, tradition of, of folk music and and country music and Irish music at at UD. And um, Ken Burns just did a beautiful uh, long documentary on country music, and there's so much nostalgia in country music. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of American identity um, that we can't overlook. As someone who grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and who frequently recurs to country music, particularly the country music of the 60s and the 70s, I completely agree with you. Um, well, thinking, you know, and this is you know, um, a big question, but a number of conservative thinkers have pointed to the fact that the collapse of mainline Protestantism, which began in the middle of the 20th century, created really this the spiritual space for critical race theory uh, in the sense that no one just had these common things they all agree on anymore about the nature of man, uh, what what marriage is, what we're supposed to do with our lives, um, uh, beyond just career, that, that that sort of the ways in which Protestantism historically elevated the American mind just collapsed. And of course now it's non-existent. 
virtually, except for evangelical Protestant churches. Uh, and nothing has really been able to fill the void. I think, you know, Father Richard Newhouse had hopes that Catholicism might be able to do that. It hasn't. Um, and, you know, so we've got, uh, we've got a progressivism, and then we've got sort of love of nation. Maybe I'm just thinking broadly here. Um, a, a, a MAGA desire, which may itself uh, take on uh, tones that are not helpful at times, but uh, one understands them, I think. Uh, we've got a revolutionary left as well. Um, so what, what could fill that void? I mean, is America spiritually, in terms of what the ways people think about how to be free and virtuous, just at sea right now? I'm glad that you mentioned Father Richard Newhouse and First Things, because I think that the the ecumenical move um, to see the way in which America is defined by its Judeo-Christian um, tradition is a very important part of um, what's happened in the conservative movement in the past um, 20 years. And I think that the, the revival of classical education um, in charter schools right now is a very hopeful um, thing going on because I think that Protestants, who sometimes tend to have a lot of patriotism for American civilization, um, are broadening their horizons to have um, patriotism for Western civilization, um, to go all the way back before 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and 1517, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, before the modern project, um, and starting to look back for the roots of the American project in the, the larger, broader West. You know, I think of Russell Kirk's book, the roots of the American order, um, just going back to Jerusalem, to Athens, to Rome, um, to London, um, to the to the long history of Western Civ, which has been thrown out absolutely by the by the woke agenda. The kind of hey hey ho ho Western Civ has got to go. Um, I think that um, Protestant Christians in America are starting to to realize that um, their um, their children need to be educated in the the broad swath of Western civilization if they're going to be able to defend um, their own American patriotic identity. Susan Hansen, thank you so much for joining us to discuss why justice requires love of nation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.